I'm just going to say, Isaac, that was a statement said in faith. And I hope I can live up to you. Uh, it's a great topic, I'm just going to say. Today, we begin a new series that we're calling More Than You Realize. And we're going to be going through the book of uh, Romans chapter 8 and pick out some very important verses there. And I, and I pray that this will strengthen each one of us in our walk with Christ and understanding of how wonderful our salvation is. When James was born, um, he became, he wasn't thriving. And in fact, we thought we were, you know, we, we were afraid we were going to lose him because he kept losing weight, losing weight. And finally, it became apparent that we needed to make an emergency trip back to the States. And so um, my brother took my three older kids Cindy and I got James, and then Coco went with us, and we made this emergency trip to the States. And I'll never forget, we got onto this 747 jumbo jet in Manila. We were going to fly to Korea, uh, Tokyo, or Seoul, I don't remember which one. And as we're boarding the aircraft, I'm feeling all kinds of emotions. I'm worried, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen. You know, this babe that in our arms... He was so small, so tiny. Um, and so anyway, uh, one of the reasons why my mom suggested that Coco go with us was that she was four years old, and she said, she'll be a distraction from the heaviness of this trip. And my mother was 100% correct. Bubbly little Coco is with us at every moment, asking the questions she needs to ask. So as we boarded the 747 and found our way to our seat, she looked up at me and she said, as only a four-year-old could say, Dad, where is the driver of this airplane? I said, Coco, the driver is way down in front. Remember the stairs that went up when we came in the door? He's on the second floor and he's way in the front of the airplane. And then she says to me, I'm glad you're not the driver of this airplane. I don't think you know how. And she was 100% correct. And then she says, so dad, um, I know these, this airplane goes like this, right? Do these airplanes ever go like this? At this point, I thought, I need to get out of this conversation because I can't stand to have a conversation with a four-year-old in this very troubled moment about the possibility and history of plane crashes all over the world. But you know, I'll never get over how incredible it is to get on a 747 with 400 other people and all of their luggage, this thing that is like three stories tall. It's like flying a three-story building through the air. That's what it is. I had a neighbor who was a pilot, and he said, well, let me tell you what flying is like. It is terrifying when you take off, and it is terrifying when you land, and it's pretty much boring all the other times. You know, the fact is, in order for an airplane that large, that heavy, with that many people to make it from Asia all the way to the United States, that's usually 12, 13 hour flight from you know, Seoul to San Francisco. I mean, it requires all kinds of systems and engineering work. And you know what, if, if you, if you don't, uh, don't understand, 
uh, how complicated that is, just take a moment and think about it. There, it is necessary for all of those systems to work and for everybody who's involved to be doing their job just at the right time and accomplishing the goal. You know, sometimes I think that when we consider our salvation, that we forget that this is the plan of the ages created, crafted, and executed by an eternal, transcendent God of the universe. It is exceedingly complicated. It is exceedingly necessary for it to be precise and accomplish everything that is needed. There's no way you and I could ever figure that out. But you know, the, the, many theologians have said that if you could have one book of theology in the Bible, it would be the, the book of Romans. And if you're going to pick one chapter in Romans that is the pinnacle of the writing that describes the great salvation of God to fallen human beings, the greatest story ever told, it is Romans chapter 8. I mean, it is an amazing chapter. And I think that as we explore the truths of what salvation really is all about, we will discover it is a grand, magnificent, marvelous salvation. It is too wonderful to fully comprehend and understand. But the more we understand what was going on, the greater our sense of security will be. Have you ever wondered, you know, am I really secure in my relationship with God? When I die, am I really going to be okay? Well, I, I just want to recommend to you that this study in Romans chapter 8, if you'll lean in and listen, and you're going to have to think, because it's not an easy chapter, it will help lay foundations of truth that will help you have a greater sense of security, and you will be able to worship God with a fuller heart when you understand and discover how marvelous it is. Romans chapter 8 begins with this statement, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. And it ends with the statement, there is going to be, no, nothing can separate us. No separation. So those are kind of the two bookend thoughts for the whole chapter of Romans 8. But today we're going to begin with chapter 8 and verse 1. And let's read it together. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when you think about, are you going to be okay, here, here is the critical a question. Are you in Christ? Have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And if you are in Christ, come what may, through your ups and your downs, your good times and your bad times, this is what this gospel says. There is therefore now, right now, everybody say now. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, one of my biggest fears is that I'm going to forget something. Forget to do something or make a mistake and, and then I'm going to be in trouble. Do you ever worry about getting in trouble? Anybody here? I'm so glad that this salvation it includes this statement, hey, 
the love of God, the salvation of God through his son Jesus is so comprehensive. At the moment you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, you can be sure there is no condemnation over you. Romans begins, and it tells the story of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's a key phrase, faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Paul declares that mankind has a problem. We have fallen under the wrath of God because of our ungodliness godliness and unrighteousness and it's a problem and it's an issue. Romans 3 goes on and develops this topic a little bit more. This is a, this is a series on Romans 8, not, not 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, okay? But we're going we're gonna to kind of go back at least a little bit. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big word, Google it. Um, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Here's the, the, the critical statement is you've got to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Now the question is, in our modern times, are guilt and shame and condemnation really anything to talk about? I mean, no one wants to feel guilty. In these postmodern times, it, it seems like we've come up with a solution for our guilt. And you know what the solution is? Let's throw out all moral absolutes. Get rid of the standards of the Bible. Do what you want to do. If you have guilt, just remember, you can throw that guilt away because you actually are in charge of your own morality as you care to define it. Don't let other people, especially any traditional religious system or the word of God, provide you with unnecessary guilt. It's unnecessary. You can choose to not be guilty. I love what Tim Keller writes about this topic, and I, I've taken some of his thoughts, and, and some of these are quotes, and some of these are, are, are thoughts that I put together. And this is what he has to say. In a postmodern world, people arbitrarily decide what is moral and what is not moral. The great effort of this era is not to allow anyone to tell them that what, what is right or wrong. You can decide for yourself. If you feel like some activity or action is good for you, then just do it. Any feeling of guilt, it should just be dismissed because that's an old-fashioned idea. It's out of date. I've heard people talk about how they have been freed from the traditional standards of their parents' religion. They no longer feel guilty about what their parents felt guilty about. This is a new day. We get to make the rules. So this idea of being filled with guilt has become irrelevant. Our television shows and our media are full of people who talk openly about their lives and joke about things that at one time were considered shameful. I mean, it's no longer shameful to discuss so many of these things. 
in the generation that has detached themselves from a sense of morality, from the righteous standards of God on the Bible, this, this is no big deal. I mean, you might hear well, there's no condemnation, and you might think today, well, so what? I don't care about condemnation anyway. I'm not worried about it. I'm okay. I don't struggle with guilt. But then there's a bigger discussion here. There, there are two ideas that bring us condemnation. The first one is guilt, which you may dismiss. The opposite of guilt is innocence. And the opposite of shame is glory. I mean, in guilt, it's about you did something you weren't supposed to do. I've broken a rule, so I know what that was. It's kind of easy to define. But when it comes to shame, you have this deep sense that maybe you will be found unworthy that your life will not have meaning, that you will not accomplish any kind of a purpose that is important or worthwhile. And you can feel both shame and guilt. And, and the truth is, there are a lot of people who are struggling to justify their own existence. And they, you know why? They don't have the glory that God wants to give them. Because in the glory that God wants to give us, there is meaning and purpose It is so painful to think that we might not count. Our lives may not matter. We don't want to think of ourselves as a failure. I mean, the honest truth is, I don't want to be a failure. Do I know if I'm succeeding all the time? I don't know. Isaac said I would. I don't know. I hope he's right. I want my life to count. I want to contribute meaningfully to the people around me, especially to my wife and my family, my children. And I don't want to lose the glory. The glory is not chasing after what only God has. It's about being created in the image of God, and he, he shares his glory with us. He wants us to reflect that glory, and that's why he shows us how to live and what to do, and he gives meaning and purpose to our lives, and I want that. Um, even in our world, when we've tried to erase any standards, we have left a generation struggling to know if they're okay, if they're worthy. A Reuters, a Reuters report uh, in 2019 said this, suicidal thinking, severe depression, and rates of self-injury among U.S. college students more than doubled over less than a decade. And unhappiness is hardly confined to Americans, as the social commentator Kay Heimowitz recently wrote, Germans are lonely, the bon vivant French are lonely, and even the Scandinavians are lonely. The British Prime Minister recently appointed a minister of loneliness. People have more money, better health, better housing, more education. They are living longer than at any time in history. But people, especially the young, are unhappier than at any time since data began to be collected. Why, some say. 
there are a number of reasons. Increased drug and opioid addiction, less human interaction because of constant cell phone use, and young people's fears for their future are most widely offered as explanations. But the biggest reason is the loss of values and meaning, and nobody knows what to do. In a day when people have thrown off their understanding of God who created them, we in the gospel see a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You matter to God. You are loved by God. Your value, you are worth more than you realize even the death of the Son of God on the cross. And this is a God who loves us so very much. He doesn't love us because we deserve it or we've earned it. He loves us because he is good and he created you and he, he wants you to be okay. And his love and his forgiveness and his that alone will transform a lonely, confused human heart. You know, there are some stories that you hear you never forget. You just keep, you never, you never forget them. This is one of those stories for me. It's the story of a group of men that went fishing in Alaska. And they all got together and they flew in this pontoon, you know, sea landing airplane. I know there's a better term, but I don't know what it is because I'm not, the fishermen like that. So, but anyway, you know, the, the airplane with pontoons and they land on the water. And so, so they, they were excited about their fishing trip. They all loaded up into this little airplane and they fly to their uh, choice fishing spot. And uh, all of these men, man, they had a great time. One of the men had brought along his 10 year old son. And at, when the day was done and everybody was tired, they got back into this, this airplane for the short flight back. And when they got in the airplane, all was well, and the pilot revved up the engines and began to take off. But immediately, he realized something was wrong. In fact, what had happened was, there was a hole in one of the pontoons that over the day had filled up with water. And as they took off over the bay, it, it, it was clear that they were not going to make it. And so the pilot had to crash land. And when he landed, amazingly, all of the men and the 10-year-old boy survived the crash landing. But now they were further from shore in the icy waters of Alaska, and they realized they were going to now have to swim their way through the currents all the way back to shore that was a long way away. And none of them knew if they had enough strength to make it, but they all had to try. So they all began to swim with everything they had, except for the man with the 10-year-old son. As he looked at his 10-year-old son, he assessed the situation and realized there's no way a 10-year-old is going to be able to swim all the way to shore in these icy waters. And if I try to carry him with me, I won't have enough strength to carry him and me and make it to shore. And so he had to make a decision, and his decision was this. Would he abandon his son to die alone in the icy waters of the Alaskan Ocean? And as he swam to shore, the last words he would have heard from his son was the desperate cry, Dad, where are you going? Dad, why are you leaving me? Dad, I, I don't know. 
I don't think I'm going to make it. Please don't leave me. And so this man decided, I can't do that for him. So I'm going to stay with him, and I will hold him, and we will both die together in each other's arms. And when the men reached the shore and turned around, they saw this picture, and they would never forget a demonstration of love like that. And the story of the gospel is the story of God who said, I could walk away from you, but I can't bear that because I love you so I will hold on to you and die with you and for you to save you. An understanding of that level of divine love is all by itself transformational. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. God doesn't want you to perish. And the verse continues. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn. There's that word, condemn the world. You may be here today thinking, you know, all God wants to do is condemn me. No, 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 you got it all wrong. God knows everything about you. He sees all of your sins, your failures, and all the ugly things you've done that even you yourself hate. But God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Salvation is a gift of grace. No one deserves it. No one maintains it. It is given as the gift of God. Now, Romans chapter 7 is one of the kind of saddest, dark parts of this whole book of Romans. And I'm, I'm, I'm referring to it because you got to know that Romans 8.1 comes at the end of the last verse of Romans chapter 7. Listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 7. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not do, Uh, will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice he doesn't say what will deliver me, but who will deliver, who's going to come and hold on to me in the icy water? Is there anybody who can deliver me? I can't do it myself. So then, with the mind I 
myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. See, see how that just flows straight into that? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, you would have thought Romans 8 verse 1 would have said, and so you deserve it, I condemn you. Amen. It doesn't say that. In Christ. This is a perfect gift of God. It doesn't come with condemnation. If you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus is constantly forgiving sinners who do not deserve forgiveness. Jesus tells about the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee's a good man. The publican was a sinner. The, the, the Pharisee recites all of his good works in his prayer. The, the sinner, the publican, just simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus points out, and who do you think went away justified that day? Because God always listens to the prayers of those who beg for forgiveness. The prodigal son home, returns home. You would have thought that his father would have condemned him. I mean, wouldn't you expect that? But what does the father do? This is the story Jesus crafts and Jesus tells. And when the son comes walking home, the father runs to meet him and he forgives him and he puts on his robe on him and his ring on him because there is thou, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you will just ask, he will forgive, he will save the woman at the well had had five husbands and she was living with a man. Jesus doesn't condemn her. <clears throat> he offers living water. The maniac of Gadara, he, he was a sinful man. He was even demon-possessed. I mean, this guy was crazy. And Jesus rescues and forgives him. And there is no condemnation for this guy. The thief on the cross, hanging next to Jesus, dying, crucified, just as Jesus was on that very day, looks to Jesus and prays this prayer, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus should have said, no, I condemn you right now. You no, he, you know what he says? Today you will be with me in paradise because it is not the heart of God to condemn. It's the heart of God to forgive those who come in faith and ask for salvation. This is better than you could expect. This is more than you realize. This is the majesty of the salvation that we read about in the book of Romans. You know, the amazing thing is that when, you know, we, we, we feel like that, and I think this is why some people grow, um, they, they lose their sense of security, is there are moments, and I know I experience it, like that moment in time where you feel kind of emotional and spiritual, and then and you, you hear the gospel and you decide you're going to pray and accept Christ in, in that one moment. In the continuum of your life experience, that one moment you choose to accept Christ. And you think that's the whole deal. That's not the whole deal. You know, when you ask Jesus to forgive you, you're asking for him to forgive you of all the sins that you know of in the past, maybe even in the present, but you don't even know what the future sins will be. Some of you have committed things and you were shocked that you could have done that and you were destroyed to think that, I mean, the level of condemnation came over you and you, you didn't think you would ever get out of that hole. And then you realize after reading Romans chapter 8, verse 1, hey, you know what? When I saved you, I said yes to you back then. You didn't know 
you would need my forgiveness on this moment, but I did. I have looked at you in and out and all around. And when I said yes to forgive you, it included even what you were surprised would happen. This is a magnificent salvation. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So remember that God who saved you, he knew the past, the present, and even the future that you don't know. Paul used to be Saul, and he hated Jesus, and he persecuted the church, and he jailed people, and he, he had people killed. And then the apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus one day, was confronted with Jesus himself. And then Paul later would become the apostle to the Gentile world, and he would give this as his testimony. Hey, you know who I am? I am the chief of sinners. And God saved me. Didn't deserve it. Romans 7, I can't maintain it. But this is an incredible gospel. You know, today in Afghanistan, we hear stories about how Christians have been identified and the threat is that they will be killed. And I don't even, I don't know, you know, it's just a long way to Afghanistan, what, what reports are true and not, but there's no question that the current regime is, is anti-Christian. Franklin Graham sent out a, a plea to all the churches asking for us to make today a day where we pray for the people of Afghanistan. I'd like for us to do that right now if you'd join me. Um, you know, make no mistake, nothing shall separate even those who are persecuted from the love of Christ. For those who have been chosen to be martyrs, God will send this incredible dying grace. And for those he chooses, some will be rescued miraculously. God is at work to deliver and to save. And God has used throughout history the blood of the martyrs as the seeds of the church. Our prayer should be, oh God, in the middle of this persecution and struggle, would you please open the eyes of even their persecutors, like Saul? And would you let a great movement of God begin 
in that place because we have a Savior who is a champion who will not be defeated. And I want you, would you pray with me about that? And then I want to personalize it. Who is the person in your life who you think is farthest from God? Would you include them today in that prayer? And beg God to speak and to move because he is a most gracious and loving God and he will hear and answer our prayers so that you feel like you're participating, okay? If you can think of a friend, a neighbor, a son, a daughter, a spouse, a mother, a father, someone in your life who needs the Lord, have you, have you thought of them? Now would you raise your hand so that together we will all pray for each other and for them. If there's somebody in your heart right now, somebody you want to pray for, come on, lift up your hand. Yeah, don't be shy. Let's fight for their souls. Come on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to stand, if you will, and let's pray. Dear God in heaven, this is such a great salvation that we talk about and sometimes we don't really fully comprehend or even appreciate what a marvelous thing it is. But today we're trying to figure it out and we ask that you'd aid us. And today we want to pray for the people of Afghanistan, the believers who are under persecution. I pray that you would rescue them. I pray that you'd give grace as it's needed. We pray for the salvation of even their persecutors. And Lord, may even the blood of the martyrs be the seeds of the church. For we declare that you are king of all and you make no mistakes and your sovereign choices stand only to bring you glory and to bless those around them around us. I pray, Lord, um, that you would please move. I pray for everybody who raised a hand, and you, you, you know and read in their hearts the names of the people that they love and care about that need you, and today in Jesus' name, we pray that you would move powerfully and open up their understanding. We pray that you would move them to accept Christ as their Savior. May the lies, the misconceptions, the wrong ideas fall away and may your truth be exposed to them, Lord. So Lord, we call upon you in Jesus' name and pray that you would save the lost. Now as you're standing today, Maybe the truth is you yourself are not yet in Christ. And you say, boy, that's such an abstract thing. I get it. But would you realize today he is your solution? He will forgive you. No one loves you like Jesus does. Maybe right now you would be willing to pray and accept Jesus as your Savior. Whether you're in the room or watching online, I'm going to invite you to join with me in prayer right now.